Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This is God's word. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Father, we ask that you would bless us as we read and study this text. Pray that you would help me to preach it with clarity and passion, that I would preach your word, not merely my own thoughts, that you would open our hearts to your word, shape us and fashion us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to speak to you this morning on this one verse, and I'm going to tag my sermon, You Can Trust the Author. You can trust the author. It's been said of W.E.B. Du Bois, the great black educator and sociologist and historian, upon his completions of studies at Fisk and Harvard University and the University of Berlin, that he was convinced that change, meaning societal change, for African Americans in America could be affected by careful scientific investigations into the truth about the black American to debunk the myth and the lies that were so prevalent in uh, the nature of prejudice. So he proceeded to do so. His research was flawless. His graphs and charts were impeccable. After waiting several years and not hearing the slightest stir of Reform, Dr. Du Bois had to accept the truth about truth. Quote, it's being available does not mean it will be appropriated. What he means by that is that truth, which is stated, doesn't mean that people will accept it. In other words, truth that has been revealed doesn't necessarily mean that you will appropriate this truth to your life. And that's the way I feel about Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Somebody say, we know. We know. We know. It says, and we know. If in verse 20, 26, Paul talked about the things that we do not know. If you remember last week, he says, there's things that we don't know. We don't know the future. We don't know how God is going to uh, 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 bring things together. We don't know God's exact will for your life. But then he immediately follows up what we don't know with what we know. And we know. We know something. And what do we know, church? What he's saying is, is all things work together for good. We know this. But a pastor wisely asked his congregation... Do we know this? Do we really know this truth? 
Just because you know the verse, just because truth has been stated, just because truth is revealed, have we appropriated this truth to our life? Do we know this to be true day in and day out? And I think we could all agree that as we survey one another, that there is a pretty good, pretty good indication that we don't really know this to be true every moment of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year. My goal this morning is that we would know this to be true for us and for, for our lives. As a matter of fact, your joy in life is at stake. Let me explain. You want to be happy. Show of hands. Who would like to be happy? I think we're, you know, if we all put our hand, if we all were honest, we'd all put our hands up. We want to be happy. What's keeping you from happiness? I think a lot of us would say, what's keeping me from happiness is life itself. It's just the regular day-to-day grind of life. And yes, there are some really big tragedies that we face, and those things can keep us from happiness and linger in our lives, a level of disappointment or depression. But I think even beyond the tragedies, it's just regular grind of life that keeps us down, that keeps us from unhappiness. Now, if... There is no ultimate purpose for all of this, uh, all, all of these, these, these crazy, uh, um, upsetting, and unfortunate turns of every day. If there is no ultimate purpose for all of these things, then that means that 99% of our lives are random nonsense at best, or grueling torture at worst. Joy can be found, though. What we have here in Romans 8, 28, like, when I say your joy is at stake, it really is. Like You will have joy in life, or you will end up a grumbler and complainer in life, depending on how you appropriate this verse to your own life. Meaning whether or not you say this actually applies to me. Into my life. We don't have to go through life grumbling and complaining. But God, what we discover here, has a greater purpose for us. And so let's look at it. Know this promise. Let me read it again. This is the promise that we have. For those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Here's my sermon in a nutshell. Since we have this promise, we can live our lives with a joyful resolve. Why? How? Let me look at this through three different lenses. Number one, the promise here, Romans 8, 28, the promise 
is exclusive, the promise is exceptional, and the promise is exhaustive. Let me talk through each one of those. Number one, the promise is exclusive. Everybody say exclusive. Exclusive. Now, some of you didn't say that because some of you don't like the idea of exclusivity as attached to the Christian religion. Because, see, we live in a world where exclusive means bad. You know, if we're going to say that God saves some and not others, then that sounds bad. And, and actually, I would just say this. In what is the most famous and quoted verse in the Bible, Romans eight twenty eight, what we just read, there is an offensiveness here to the flesh. What we have to start out with is this, that this promise doesn't apply to everyone, but we're told who it applies to. And by the way, when we read the Bible, God has always had those who are in and those who are out of his promises. Think of, let's just go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 6, the story of Noah. What happens with the story of Noah? God comes to Noah, and he says, hey, the the whole world is so wicked, I'm going to send a flood of judgment upon the world. And then what does he tell Noah to do? In verse 17, he says, behold, I will bring floods of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives, to every every kind of animal, and I will keep them alive with you. So from the very beginning, we have God acting to save those who fear him by his grace. And his promises then, therefore, don't apply to all. He's not going to act in the floods to save all. But he's acting to save Noah and his family. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the ark through which we are saved, all right? Meaning there are waters of judgment that are going to come. The gospel of Jesus Christ is both inclusive and exclusive. Let me explain this. It is inclusive in the sense that that, that, uh, God offers to save and will save without exception. This this offer that you're going to hear today goes to all people everywhere, even you, even your family. Like the doors of this ark are wide open and Christ is saying all who are weary, all who are tired of their sin, all who are tired of their self-righteousness, broken and beaten by this world, come to me into this ark and I will give you rest. This is an inclusive invitation. It doesn't get any more inclusive than what you have here. This isn't like some secret invitation that only goes to a secret few people. This is somebody who's as shouting as loud as you can shout 
a.k.a. every preacher, for the last 2,000 years proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, saying, come in. This is why Christians have literally gone into all of the world. This is why Christianity is the most diverse religion out of all world religions. Because it's radically inclusive in the call. It's exclusive in this way. It's exclusive in the sense that the promises of salvation only apply to those that are in the ark. Does that make sense? For those who are in Christ, who have responded this call to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know that none of us in this room who are Christians... None of us believe that we are recipients of God's promises because we deserve it. I want you to know that every single one of us would say that we deserve the floods of God's judgment. Because we were born not inherently good, but rebels against God. People of pride, people of self-righteousness, people... Uh, uh, people of anger, people of lust, people of greed. We've broken every single one of the Ten Commandments. And so we deserve not God's promises, but the floods of God's wrath. So how can we call ourselves then recipients of the promise? It's not because of what we've done, but it's because of what Jesus did and continues to do on our behalf. What has he done? He lived the life, Jesus being God in the flesh, lived the life that we should have lived. And when he died on the cross, he took all of the floods of God's judgment on himself for us. A substitution. It killed him, it put him in the ground, and then three days later, God rose him from the dead. Victory, hope after death. This is the Christian life. And then we're called to turn from our sins, worshiping ourselves, rebels against God. We're turning from our rebellion, and we are trusting in the work of Jesus Christ, believing that Jesus died for our sins so that we might have forgiveness now, and that because of his resurrection, we have the hope that one day we will be raised with him and live forever with God. It's inclusive in that I am inviting you now to turn and to trust in Jesus Christ. And those who trust in Jesus Christ are recipients of what we're talking about here. Let me show you in the text where I get this from. So he, Paul defines who is, who, who, uh, with two statements, who the recipients of this promise are. First statement. This promise is for those who love God. That's the very first line in the ESV translation. For those who love God. This is the inner disposition of the Christian. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. I wonder if you know what it says. Love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He that does not love does not love God because God is love. See, we have died to our old selves, raised to new life in Jesus. Therefore, 
There is no Christian who does not love God. Now, let me, let me first, though, say what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that God acts because of our love. He's not saying that because you love God so well, therefore, he's going to work everything out for you. No, God doesn't act because of what we do. The Bible says that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. So God acts prior to our love. Our love is actually a response to what God has done for us. Paul is also not saying that if you don't love God enough, that God is not going to work all things out for good. Because I don't know if you are like me, but we struggle to love God. You know, sometimes our love for God, it grows sickeningly weak. Sometimes we lapse in our love for God and fall back into our flesh and love our sin more than we love God for a moment. But you see, a Christian doesn't stay there. While we might falter, our love doesn't fail. And that's because God's love doesn't fail us. And God, part of God's love is that we will persevere in our love for God. He will cause us to persevere in our love for Him. 1 John 4.19 says, We love God because He first, somebody finish it, loved us. So this, this promise is for those who love God. It's then clarified, that is clarified again in the second statement. The promise is for those who are called according to His purpose. Isn't this interesting? Just in case you think it's about us and our love for God, He says actually it's about God's action for us. It's for those who are called, who God has called, according to His purpose. Meaning our disposition of love, which is really just a nickname for Christians, those who love God, our disposition of love is based on God's decision. Called here in the text, called in this text, and then really throughout the entire Scope of the scriptures, called, never refers to just simply the general calling of all people everywhere to come and believe in Jesus. But rather, called is a specific kind of calling that produces an effect in the believer's life, and we'll talk about this more next week. But the point where I want to go right now is that his calling here is something that is God's action for us that has an effect in our life that then produces something and leads us to something. And that something here is defined as God's purpose. His purpose. Now, purpose is a word that we want to connect with providence. I don't know if you know what providence means. Providence, God will work all things for his purpose. I just defined it for you. All throughout Christian history, our Christian heroes were people who believed in the providence of God. They were people who believed that God, in, in spite of all the craziness in the world, that God is doing something for 
a greater purpose. Frederick Douglass, one of our own Baltimoreans who faced the evils of slavery and confronted the evils of slavery, he believed that with all of the wickedness and craziness in the world that God in some fashion is working all of this out toward a greater purpose. He had a very high view of God's providence. Charles Spurgeon, a contemporary of his, who faced his own depression, battled with it, who faced criticism of all sorts, he said this, Spurgeon said that that fate, fate is blind, but providence has eyes. See the difference there? We're not talking about blind fate. That's like more of an atheist way of seeing things, as if there's some kind of like, you know, magical uh, uh, thing that's going to happen. No, providence Providence has eyes, meaning God in His providence is strategic, and He's seeing things, and He's moving things toward a greater purpose. Spurgeon goes on to say that there is a design in everything and an end to be answered. So this statement in verse 28 is further explained in verses 29 through 30, which ultimately leads, if you look at verse 30, to our glorification. So what he's saying is, is if, that, if you are in Christ, it is God's purpose to ultimately glorify you. So who does this refer to? Who is the promise for? The promise is for those who have turned to Jesus Christ, every single one of them, who are then passive recipients of God's good action and plan. So to summarize this point, the promise is exclusive in the sense that it's personal. This applies to you, believer. And God will never abandon this promise in your life. Secondly, The promise is exclusive. The promise is exceptional. It's exceptional. Nobody's going to make a promise to you better than this one. Look at it again. He says, all things work together for what? For good. Now, before I get to the good stuff, let me deal with a few problems. Problem number one. Some people think that this means that sin is excused. Since all things will work out for everything, uh, since all things will work out for good, well, and therefore, it doesn't really matter. I can go ahead and sin, and it's going to somehow end up for good. So why even try to pursue holiness? Well, my friend, if that is you, you're revealing a lack of love for God and a love for your sin. This is not meant for us to just excuse ourselves and live however we want because it's somehow going to work out in the end. Second problem here, some think that we are supposed to figure out how everything works out for good. I I remember having a conversation with a believer who was on a, a hospital bed 
and struggling with severe pain. And I remember what she said was, I just can't figure out how this is for my good. Friend, believer, I want to release you of having to figure out how all of these things are going to be for your good. Notice, we're not told here to figure it out. He doesn't say, hey, if you can figure out how this works out for your good, it will work out for your good. It's just a statement. And sometimes God makes promises that don't look like reality in your life right now. We're not called to try to figure it out. Third problem, some think that this only has an immediate temporary fulfillment. What I mean by that is this. Some believe that all things work together for good means that if I come along and steal $100 from you and get away with it, that God is in some way going to punish me immediately and, and drop $1,000 into your bank account. Like in some fashion, we're going to have an immediate kickback, an immediate payback. Now, sometimes it might be immediate, but not necessarily. Again, let's go back to verse 29 and 30, because we've got to see where this purpose is taking us. Look, look at verse 29. And by the way, we're going to study these two verses in depth next week, but just ever so briefly right now. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his sons. Let's stop right there. Good doesn't necessarily mean material payback right now. Good here is ultimately connecting us to becoming like Jesus. He's moving us toward Christ. Meaning the good that you might experience from suffering very well could be primarily about your sanctification. Meaning we need to go through suffering in order to grow in our holiness. We need to go through trials in order to grow in our faith. It's how people get muscles. You might wonder, how does Joel get these mat? No, I'm just playing. You, you probably wonder, why doesn't this guy work out ever? Well, I do every day. It just doesn't show, all right? How do people, how does Mike Roach look the way he does? All right. It's because when, when we stress our muscles, they grow. If you don't stress your muscle, like for those of you that just want to sit back on your couch and play video games all day, I'm telling you, your muscles are currently shrinking. All right. You got to stress those things in order for them to grow or you will this is the way our faith works. This is, this is not just my idea. This is the Bible. James chapter 1, verse 4 says that the trials in life that we face lead us to becoming mature and complete, not lacking anything. We're told that God ordains suffering in our life so that we might have more faith, so it might turn out to be gold and that we might have more holiness. So the good here very well could be talking about your sanctification. The good here also is talking about 
your glorification. Look at verse 30. He says, those whom, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also what? Glorified. Now, how good is that final good? He just led us from your current sufferings all the way through to heaven. That's what glorification is. How good is that final good? Well, let me put it this way. The glory of God in the Bible is the ultimate good. You can't think of anything better than the glory of God. Well, how can we imagine this? I don't know. It's beyond our comprehension. It's why God doesn't just spell it out for us. All I would say is this. Think of the highest good that you can currently think of. Whatever the good life is, the glory of God is better than that. The glory of God is the satisfaction of every desire. It is the fulfillment of every deep longing. It is the highest good. Now check this out. It's so good and so unimaginable that, as we mentioned last week, when Moses just got a glimpse of the glory of God, his face shone for days. And we are told that in our glorification that we will not just get a glimpse of the glory of God, but that we will see him face to face. Meaning, the glory of God is found in our glorification. We don't separate the glory of God from the reality, church, that you and I are one day going to be glorified. And when that happens, we will be like Him. The second century theologian Arrhenius, he put it like this. He says, for the glory of God is the living human. The life of the human is the vision of, good, uh, of God. Indeed, if the manifestation of God through creation gives life to all things living on earth, much more does the revelation of God of the Father by the Word give life to those who seek God. What he's saying is this, is that the highest good that you can imagine is in your glorification. You can't imagine how wonderful that is going to be. This is why Jesus simply puts it this way. He says, so therefore, do not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break into steel, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. What's Jesus after there? He's after our hearts. He's after your joy. You see, Jesus wants you to store your heart in the safest place so that when the problems come and when the trials arise, that your heart is not lost, your joy is not stolen, you don't fall into a spirit of grumbling and complaining because our hope is not in this world. Here's my application. In some of these things, then, you will never see the application of good until that day you wake up on the shores of glory 
and see Christ face to face. So don't go looking for all of the fulfillments now. Don't be tempted to believe, and this is what I believe Satan wants to tempt us to believe. Don't, don't be tempted to believe that God is failing in his promise just because you can't find the good now. One day, church, face to face, we will see him. Perhaps, perhaps God hasn't given you some success in life because that success could rob your soul. Perhaps God has given you a thorn in your flesh in order to keep you relying on him until that day you see him face to face. The good here is an eternal good. Now also, here, let me give you a fourth problem. Some think this means that everything is therefore good. This is, a, this is one of the reasons people misquote this text. Notice, he doesn't say all things are good. He says all things work together for good, but not all things are good. Evil is not good. When he put his hands on you, that was not good. Your abuse that you endured was not good. Homicide, the horror of it, the violation of theft, the lust of a predator is not good. And church, when somebody is suffering because of evil in this world and you just don't want to sit with them in their grief, you just want to get past it because it makes you feel uncomfortable, and so you just quote Romans 8, 28, you're doing them a disservice. Because we are called to weep with those who weep. Not to just quote Romans 8, 28 as a way for me to get out of an uncomfortable situation and say, hey, everything's going to work out for your good. True. That's true. But that's not, that's not your heart's intent, to weep with those who weep. Not everything is good, but the text says everything will work together for good. I like the way Stephanie Greer put it earlier as we were talking through this text earlier this week. She, said, she put it this way. She said, she said, this text ultimately allows us, like those of us who have gone through horror and tragedy, it allows us to not have to look for closure. It allows us to not try to redeem every evil. What she means is that you don't have to try to find the silver lining in everything. Look, some things don't have a silver lining. And that's what makes this amazing. Even these ugly things in life that are pure evil, that I can trust that somehow in God's sovereignty that is far greater than my imagination, that God is able to work these things together for my good. Why? It's because of his purpose. And nothing can thwart God's purpose for 
your life, not even evil. By the way, this is why I disdain so much of what passes as preaching today. There was a uh, conversation I had with a frustrated and disillusioned older Christian who said, I know God has a purpose for me, I just don't know what it is yet. You see, this is the end result of the find your purpose gospel. This basic idea that God has gifted you to do something in this world and, and uh, uh, the good news is that there is a hidden genius that you have that's just awaiting to be display itself to be displayed and, and uh, your job is to figure it out and find God's purpose for your life and then go live God's purpose for your life. And it results in an endless search for meaning. It's wrapped up in, in happiness and feel-good positivity, but at the end of the day, it is works-based righteousness in which you are called to discover and do and accomplish something. I just am so happy for the gospel, which tells us of what Jesus has done. He has a purpose, listen, that you don't even have to discover that he will accomplish in your life, even when things seem crazy. This is good news, isn't it? Yeah. I'm happy for the gospel which leads us to Christ. The, the, the purpose that we have is all about him, that we might become like him. Therefore, we just grow where we're planted. Yeah. In holiness and Christ-likeness to obey God and glorify Him with our regular, ordinary lives. And that through doing it, through all of our ups and downs and even our failures, that God will accomplish His purpose for you. Which is far greater, by the way, than you becoming a CEO. This is glorification with Christ. Third. Third, so the promise is exclusive, the promise is, uh, is exceptional, and the promise, thirdly, is exhaustive. Here's what I mean by that. Look back at the text, verse 28. What works together for good? What is it? All things. All things. What does that mean? Theologians debate this. Perhaps it's the sufferings that we see in verse 18. Paul was talking about these current sufferings, that these, these current sufferings will somehow work together for our good. And I think that that's true. Perhaps it is what we see in verse 36. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. Persecution. That somehow God will work out the persecution for our good. But I think, yes and yes, I think the, the most straightforward reading of the text is the best way to understand it. Meaning all things literally means, somebody help me, all things. All things. And this is biblical. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 tells us the king's heart is a stream of water in God's hand. He turns it however he wills. Meaning God 
has the rulers and authority in his hand. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Even the evil that, that is enacted against us, God is using for his purposes. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and one uh, does not fall apart from your father? Meaning, even the birds of the air, the sparrows, which in the text, uh, in, in the culture, would have been the lowest of all the birds. Even the sparrows are not dying outside of God's design. Well, what about these random things? Like dice, a lot that is cast. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 30, 33, the lot is cast into the lap. Dice are thrown on the ground, but it's every decision is from the Lord, meaning nothing happens outside of God's ultimate design. So yes, sufferings are included in this. Yes, persecution is included in this. There is an unending number of things that are included in this because we're talking about all things. And saying some of these things are horrific. A loved one dies. Abuse, terminal illness. Some of these all things are very natural, yet trials nonetheless. You get older. Your body starts breaking down. You can't do what you used to do. You're, you're starting to have more illnesses and problems with your physical body. Sorry, I get distracted real easy. Some things are spiritual. Meaning, how many of you have ever had some regret over sin? How many of you have dealt with consequences because of your sin? Don't you realize that even your sin is included in the all things? Everyday trials. Everyday trials, all of the stresses that you face every day, the feelings of not adding up in your school or in your job or whatever it is that you thought you should be doing with your life and you're not there. That's included in this. The fact that all you want to do is, is relax and rest and, 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 and get ready for bed, and then you realize, oh my goodness, I have to go to the grocery store. That's included in the all things. When all you want to do is take a day off, and you have a, a mound of laundry before you. All things. When you get dressed for church, and your baby spits up something that's like straight out of you know, Chucky, and it's all over you. Listen, all things. Nothing happens randomly. It's one thing, I feel like, to believe that these big tragedies of life will somehow work out for our good. And I think it's almost more remarkable to realize that all of the mundane trials and events and moments of life. Every little trial, every day, 
nothing happens outside of God's great design. That's amazing. That's exhaustive. That's good news. My, my sermon, uh, I said at the beginning, is this. Since God promises that all things work together for good, we can therefore live with joyful resolve. Initially, when I was writing the sermon, I wrote resistance, uh, resilience down. We can live with resilience. But then I'm, the more I thought about resilience as an application, I was like, no, I don't like the word resilience for this. Because you can kind of be resilient and get through something without having joy. You can be resilient and get through something without actually being better for it. Now, we're talking about a, a joyful resolve. Here's why I use the word resolve. Because the dictionary defines resolve as coming to a definite and earnest decision about something. And I want us to come to a definite and earnest decision this morning that this verse applies to every single bit of my life and therefore I can live with this kind of joy. Amen. Joy. In what? It's an eager expectation for how God is going to somehow figure this out. Yeah. Not figure this out. Work this out for our good. We live with anticipation. It doesn't mean we don't suffer. It doesn't mean we don't feel the pain. We're not stoics. We still cry. But we can have joy. Because it's part of God's plan. It's all part of His plan, and His plan is good for you. In other words, here's my application. I want us to develop and practice a robust doctrine of God's providence. God's providence is simply defined this morning as every single event in life being part of God's plan for your good. I want you to develop this doctrine in your life. How do we do this? Start by reading the Bible. This doctrine, you know, the reason he says we know is because Paul's not saying something that God has not shown or said elsewhere. He's summarizing it in a very beautiful and unique uh, fashion. But the whole Bible testifies to this truth. We know this because from Genesis through Revelation, this is reality. Joseph in Genesis, through Jeremiah, through Jesus' own life on this earth, his work, death, burial, and resurrection, all things working for good. Through the narrative that we see of the early church in Acts, it is clear all through the birth of the early church, through the epistles, all of the writings in the New Testament, through the end of the Bible in Revelation, where God, in the midst of all the persecution, has the victory. And we are the conquerors. And it's all working for our good. So, church, be a student of the Bible and work on this. Develop a doctrine in your life. Study this. Examine this. Find this. When you see it in the Bible, write it down in a journal. Make notes of this. Now, develop this doctrine. Secondly, practice 
this doctrine in your life. Here's what I mean by practice. Our brain has these old pathways that need to be corrected. Like some of you, you have, you have brains with pathways that are so used to responding with stress and anger and anxiety and sadness and worry. We're, we're, we're just used to these things. And what I'm saying is this, this, does, this doesn't happen overnight. It's not like a pill that you can take or a flip, that, a switch that you can flip. We've got to work on this. We have to actually practice this every day. As you're going through your days and as you're feeling the stresses and the trials, appropriate this truth to your life. If I could give an example of this in my own life, this last summer, we have, a, we have a summer camp that we do as a church, and those of you that help out with our kids' programming and our summer camp, you understand this when I say, it's a lot of work, and it can be stressful at times. And I remember the, the, uh, Stephanie was uh, leading, leading out this summer with our summer camp, and there was a week where, I forget exactly what was going on, but maybe Sevy was sick or something, and so Stephanie was out. And it was me. And that morning, beginning of the week, I got up and I was like trying to battle all of those emotions that you feel when your, your schedule has changed, your plans are changed, and you feel like you're forced into something. And I remember praying, God, let me practice Romans 8.28. And so I, I practiced it that day. And as I got into the office, and then I'm looking at these kids, a whole big group of kids, and I was telling my, I was preaching to my soul that this is part of the all things that work together for good. And all of these feelings I have, like this isn't what I should be doing with my time, or this is, you know, I, I've got other things that I have to do, or this is the moment that God has ordained for me. And it was transformational that day. And I took them to the mall, and we did a scavenger hunt, and I literally enjoyed every single minute of it. Now, I generally don't use myself as an example of what to do because I do so many things wrong. I'm just saying that I've experienced this in my life. That's all I'm saying. I'm just testifying yeah. to God's truth. Yeah. I'm testifying to his goodness yeah. that we can practice this and we can have joy, joyful resolve in this life. How? Answer. Because we trust the author of this life. We trust the author. As I close, I'm out of time. I only, I read a lot of books. I read a very, very limited number of fiction books, you know, stories. I only read a fiction book if I know I can trust the author. Like, I don't know if you've realized this, but there's a lot of books out there. And I've started so many books in my time, and I'm like, this is just not worth my time. 
And so if, some, if I can trust the author, meaning it's got some good reviews. So my favorite book is a book called Peace Like a River, my favorite fiction book, story, Peace Like a River. And it was uh, a, a book that has won a lot of awards. It's uh, got all these accolades. It sold over a million copies. And so I knew that as I'm reading this book that I can do what? I can trust the author. And so I'm reading the book, and it's about a boy, and it's about a murder, and a tragedy, and a brother who's on the, on the run from the law. And there's an antagonist, and there's, there's a turn of events that doesn't look good, and there's a situation, you've got no clue how, this, how anything good is going to come out of this situation. But every bit of that book, as I read it, I could enjoy it. Why? Because I trusted the author. I knew it was going to turn out to be a good book, to be a good story. Now, let me ask you this. As you read or live or experience in real time the story of your life, can you trust the author? You got turns uh, of events that, that don't make any sense. You've got ups and you've got downs. You've got the antagonist. You got the problems. You don't know how good is going to come out of this, but you can have joyful resolve as you experience and live out this story. Why? Can somebody say, I trust the author. I trust the author. Do we trust him? Do we trust that God knows what he's doing with every bit of your life? And by the way, your story has a good ending. Never will God be for your harm now. And ultimately, one day, you will see Christ face to face. And when we see him, we will experience the height of good as we have joy in our Redeemer. And so let's trust this God. Amen? Father, we thank you for this truth, this promise. We ask, God, that you would help us as we seek to apply it to our own lives, that this verse would not merely just be a famous verse that we quote once in a while, but that it would transform the way we view every bit of our daily lives. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.